and welcome to the Essex Property Trust second quarter 2021 earnings call. As a reminder, today's conference call is being recorded. Statement made, statements made on this conference call regarding expected operating results and other future events are forward-looking statements that involve risks and uncertainties. Forward-looking statements are made based on current expectations, assumptions, and beliefs, as well as information available to the company at this time. A number of factors could cause actual results to differ materially from those anticipated. Further information about these risks can be found on the company's filing with the SEC. It is now my pleasure to introduce your host, Michael, Mr. Michael Shaw, President and Chief Executive Officer for Essex Property Trust. Thank you, Mr. Shaw. You may begin. Thank you for joining us today and welcome to our second quarter earnings conference call. Angela Kleiman and Barb Pack will follow me with prepared remarks and Adam Berry is here for Q&A. On today's call, I'll start with our second quarter results, which were driven by a strengthening economy and positive fundamentals that underlie a robust recovery on the West Coast. I'll also discuss the status of reopening the West Coast economies and related factors, concluding with an overview of the West Coast apartment transaction markets and investments. Our second quarter results were ahead of our initial expectations entering the year as the economic recovery from the pandemic occurred faster than we expected. With a strong economy and high vaccination rates, we are now confident that the worst of the pandemic related impacts are behind us. As noted on previous calls, our strategy during the pandemic was to maintain high occupancy and scheduled rent, both necessary for a rapid recovery. To that end, net effective rents surged during the second quarter, along with year-over-year year improvement in occupancy, other income, and delinquency. The recovery in net effective rents continued unabated in July, and we are now pleased to announce that July net effective rents for the Essex portfolio have now surpassed pre-pandemic levels, with our suburban markets leading the way while the downtowns are improving, but still generally below pre-pandemic levels. Obviously, these higher rents will be converted into revenue as leases turn, and Angela will provide additional details in a moment. Having passed the midpoint of 2021 and looking forward, we made a second set of positive revisions to our West Coast market forecast, which can be found on page S17 of the supplemental. Driving the changes is an increase in 2021 GDP and job growth estimates to 7% and 5%, up from 4.3% and 3.2% respectively from our initial forecast. As a result, we now expect our average 2021 net effective rent growth to improve to minus 0.9% from minus 1.9% from the beginning of the year. To put this into perspective, consider that our net effective rents were down about 9% year over year in Q1 2021. Given our current expectation of minus 0.9% rent growth for the year, year over year net effective market rents are now forecasted to increase about 6% in the fourth quarter of 2021. Cash delinquencies were up modestly on a sequential basis at 2.6% of scheduled rent for the quarter and well above our 30-year 
average delinquency rate of 30 to 40 basis points. The American Rescue Plan of 2021 provides funding for emergency rental assistance which was allocated to the states for distribution to renters for pandemic-related delinquencies. Through the second quarter, collections of delinquent rents from the American Rescue Plan were negligible as the pace of processing reimbursements has been slow since the program launched in March. We expect that to improve in the coming months. We expect delinquency rates to return to normal levels over time as more workers enter the workforce and eviction protections lapse on September 30th in both California and Washington. At this point, only about 7 million of the 55 million in delinquent rent shown on page S16 of the supplemental has been recorded as revenue. Given uncertainty about the timing of collections, no additional revenues are contemplated in our financial guidance. Even with the approved job and economic outlook, the reopening process was gradual through the second quarter with full reopening declared in mid and late June for California and Washington respectively. The unemployment rate was still six and a half percent in the Essex markets as of May, 2021, underperforming the nation. Through Q2, we have re regained about half of the jobs lost in the early months of the pandemic. Employment in the Essex markets dropped over 15% in April 2020, and while job growth in our markets outpaced the nation in the second quarter, we are still 7.9% below pre-pandemic employment compared to 4.4% for the U.S. overall. We see the gap as an opportunity for growth to continue in the coming months as we benefit from the full reopening of the West Coast economies. We believe that many workers that exited the primary employment centers during pandemic-related shutdowns and work-from-home programs will return as businesses reopen and resume expansion that was placed on hold during the pandemic. As we proceed through the summer months, we edge closer to the targeted office reopening date set by most large tech employers in early September. As recent reports about Apple and Google suggest, the COVID-19 Delta variant could lead to temporary delays in this reopening process. Our survey of job openings in the Essex markets for the largest tech companies continues to be very strong. As we report 33,000 job openings as of July, a 99% increase over last year's trough. New venture capital investment has set a record pace this year with Essex markets once again leading with respect to funds invested, providing growth capital that supports future jobs. Generally, economic sectors that fell the furthest during the pandemic are now positioned for the strongest recovery in the reopening process, led by restaurants, hotels, entertainment venues, travel, and filming. Return to office plans, which remain focused on hybrid approaches, will continue to draw employees closer to corporate offices. Given that many workers won't be required to be in the office on a full-time basis, we expect average commute distances to increase. As we highlight on page S17.1 of our supplemental, this transition has already started in recent months as our hardest hit markets in the Bay Area once again experienced net positive migration from beyond the NorCal region. In particular, since the end of Q1, 
The submarkets surrounding San Francisco Bay have seen positive net migration that represents 18% of total moveouts over the trailing three months compared to minus 8% a year ago. These inflows are led by residents returning from adjacent metros such as Sacramento and the Monterey Peninsula, as well as renewed flow of recent grads, graduates arriving from college towns across the country, a notable positive turnaround from last year. In Seattle CBD, we've seen similar or even stronger recent inflows and we're likewise experiencing a strong market rent recovery. On the supply outlook, we provided our semi-annual update to our 2021 forecast on S17 of the supplemental with slight increases to 2021 supply as COVID-related construction delays shifted incremental units from late 2020 into 2021. We expect modestly fewer apartment deliveries in the second half of 2021 with more significant declines in Los Angeles and Oakland. While it is still too early to quantify, recent volatility in lumber prices and shortages for building materials may impact construction starts and the timing of deliveries in subsequent years. Multifamily permitting activity in Essex markets also continues to trend favorably, declining 200 basis points on a trailing 12-month basis as of May 2021, compared to the national average, which grew 230 basis points. Median single-family home prices in Essex markets continued upward in California and Seattle, growing 18 and 21% respectively on a trailing three-month basis. The escalating cost of home ownership combined with greater rental affordability from the pandemic have increased the financial incentive to rent. We suspect these trends will continue given muted single-family supply and limited permitting activity and believe these factors will be a key differentiator for our markets in the coming years compared to many U.S. markets with greater housing supply. Turning to apartment transactions, activity has steadily accelerated since the start of the year with the majority of apartment trades occurring in the low to mid 3% cap rate range based on current rents. Generally, investors anticipate a robust rent recovery, especially in markets where current rents are substantially below pre-pandemic levels. With the recent improvement in our cost of capital, we have turned our focus once again to acquisitions and development while remaining disciplined with respect to FFO accretion targets. With respect to our preferred equity program, we continue to see new deals, although the market is becoming more competitive. Lower cap rates from pre-pandemic levels have produced higher than anticipated market valuations, which in turn has resulted in higher levels of early redemption. That concludes my comments. It's now my pleasure to turn the call over to our COO, Angela Kleiman. Thanks, Mike. My comments today will focus on our second quarter results and current market dynamics. With the reopening of the West Coast economy, the recovery has generated improvements in demand and thus pricing power. Our operating strategy during COVID to favor occupancy while adjusting concessions to maintain scheduled rents enabled us to optimize rent growth concurrent with the increase in demand, resulting in same-store net effective rent growth of 8.3% since January 1st, and most of this growth occurred in the second quarter. 
A key contributor of this accomplishment is the fantastic job by our operations team in responding quickly to this dynamic market environment. While market conditions have improved rapidly, during our second quarter, driving our second quarter results to exceed expectations, I would like to provide some context for why sequential same property revenues declined by 90 basis points compared to the first quarter. The two major factors that drove this decline were 50 basis points in delinquency and 50 basis points in concessions. Delinquency in the first quarter was temporarily lifted by the one-time unemployment disbursements from the stimulus funds. As expected in the second quarter, delinquency reverted back to 2.6% of scheduled rent versus the 2.1% in the first quarter. On concessions, the nominal amount increased from higher volume of leases in the second quarter relative to the first quarter of this year. To be clear, concessions in our markets have declined substantially and are virtually non-existent except for select CBD markets. Our average concession for the stabilized portfolio is under one week in the second quarter compared to over a week in the first quarter and over two weeks in the fourth quarter. Although concessions have generally improved in the second quarter, they remain elevated, ranging from two and a half to three weeks in certain CBDs, such as CBD LA, San Jose, and Oakland. Given the extraordinary pandemic-related volatility in rents and concessions over the past year and a half, I thought it would be insightful to provide an overview of the change in net effective rents compared to pre-COVID levels. As of this June, our same-store average net effective rent compared to March of last year was down by 3.1%. Since then, we have seen continued strength, and based on preliminary July results, our average net effective rents are now 1.5% above pre-COVID levels. It is notable that this 1.5% portfolio average diverged regionally, with both Seattle and Southern California up 5.8% and 9.3% respectively, while Northern California has yet to fully recover, with net effective rents currently at 8% below pre-COVID levels. On a sequential basis, net effective rents on new leases have improved rapidly throughout the second quarter and preliminary July rents increased 4.7% compared to the month of June, led by CBD San Francisco and CBD Seattle, both up about 11%. Not surprisingly, these two markets were hit hardest during the pandemic and are now experiencing the most rent growth. Moving on to office development activities, which we view as an indicator of future job growth and accordingly housing demand. In general, the areas along the West Coast with the greatest amount of office developments have been San Jose and Seattle. Currently, San Jose has 8.1% of total office stock under construction, and similarly, Seattle has 7.7% of office stock under construction. Notable activities include Apple leasing an additional 700,000 square feet, and LinkedIn announced recent plans to upgrade their existing office in Sunnyvale. In the Seattle region, Facebook expanded their Bellevue footprint by 330,000 square feet, and Amazon announced 1,400 new web services jobs in Redmond. We expect in the long term, areas with higher office deliveries, such as San Jose and Seattle, will have capacity for greater apartment supply without impacting rental rates. While these normal relationships were disrupted during the pandemic, 
we anticipate conditions to normalize in the coming quarters. Lastly, as the economic recovery continues to gain momentum, we have restarted both our apartment renovation programs and technology initiatives, including actively enhancing the functionality of our mobile leasing platform and smart rent home automation. Thank you, and I will now turn the call over to Barb Pack. Thanks, Angela. I'll start with a few comments on our second quarter results, discuss changes to our full year guidance, followed by an update on our investments and the balance sheet. I'm pleased to report CoreFFO for the second quarter exceeded the midpoint of the revised range we provided during the NARIC conference by $0.08 cents per share. The favorable results are primarily attributable to stronger same property revenues, higher commercial income, and lower operating expenses. Of the $0.08 cent beat, $0.03 cents relates to the timing of operating expenses and G&A spend, which is now forecasted to occur in the second half of the year. As Angela discussed, we are seeing stronger rent growth in our markets than we expected just a few months ago. As such, we are raising the full year midpoint of our same property revenue growth by 50 basis points to minus 1.4%. It should be noted this was the high end of the revised range we provided in June. In addition, we have lowered our operating expense growth by 25 basis points at the midpoint due to lower taxes in the Seattle portfolio. All of this results in an improvement in same property NOI growth by 80 basis points at the midpoint to minus 3%. Year to date, we have revised our same property revenue growth at the midpoint up 110 basis points and NOI by 160 basis points. As it relates to full year core FFO, we are raising our midpoint by nine cents per share to $12.33. This reflects the stronger operating results partially offset by the impact of the early redemptions of preferred equity investments, which I will discuss in a minute. Year-to-date, we have raised CORFFO by 17 cents, or 1.4%. Turning to the investment market, as we've discussed on previous calls, strong demand for West Coast apartments and inexpensive debt financing has led to sales and recapitalizations of several properties underlying our preferred equity and subordinated loan investments, resulting in several early redemptions. During the quarter, we received $36 million from an early redemption of a subordinated loan, which included $4.7 million in prepayment fees, which have been excluded from core FFO. Year-to-date, we have been redeemed on approximately $150 million of investment and expect that number could grow to approximately $250 million by year-end. This is significantly above the high end of the range provided at the start of the year. However, this speaks to the high valuation apartment properties are commanding today, which is good for Essex and the net asset value of the company. As for new preferred equity investments, we have a healthy pipeline of accretive deals, and we are still on track to achieve our original guidance of 100 to 150 million in the second half of the year. As a reminder, our original guidance assumed new investments would match redemptions during the year. However, the timing mismatch between the higher level of early redemptions coupled with funding of new investments expected later this year has led to an approximate 10 cent per share drag on our FFO for the year. Moving to the balance sheet, we remain in a strong financial position due to refinancing over one third of our debt over the past year and a half, taking advantage of the low interest rate environment to reduce our weighted average rate by 70 basis points to 3.1% and lengthening our maturity profile by an additional two years. 
We currently have only 7% of our debt maturing through the end of 2023. Given our latter maturity schedule, limited near-term funding needs, and ample liquidity, we are in a strong position to take advantage of opportunities as they arise. This concludes my prepared remarks. I will now turn the call back to the operator for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will be conducting a question and answer session. If you'd like to ask a question, you may press star one on your telephone keypad. A confirmation tone will indicate your line is in the question queue. You may press star two if you would like to remove your question from the queue. For participants using speaker equipment, it may be necessary to pick up your handset before pressing the star key. In the interest of time, if you could please limit yourself to one question and one follow-up so we may get to everyone's questions. Our first question comes from the line of Nick Joseph with City. Please proceed with your question. Thanks. Um, maybe you start in, um, Barb, on the comments you just made on the um, on the preferred equity and the MES loan. Um, in, in terms of the pipeline today, are you seeing any compression on yields or expected returns um, or any changes to the competition there? Hey, Nick, this is Adam. Um, to answer your question, yes, uh, we're seeing compression on uh, cap rates. We're seeing it's a much more competitive market now with uh, proceeds going well above where, where we're typically comfortable and rates going uh, significantly below where we've, we've been in the market. So to, to some, yeah, we, uh, we are seeing absolute compression on valuations. Thanks. So then in terms of the early uh, redemptions that you've seen, I mean, is there a risk of further early redemptions that could uh, at least create an air pocket on the earnings side? Hi, Nick. At, and this is Barb. At this point, I think we factored that all in based on what we know today. Um, and we're already, you know, in, almost in August. So I think um, we factor that into the current guidance. So I, I'm not expecting any more redemptions at this point for the rest of the year. Thanks. Our next question comes from the line of Rich Hill with Morgan Stanley. Please proceed with your question. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, I wanted to just come back to sort of trends that you're seeing in, in, in your markets. Um, uh, and I appreciate all the color and commentary you gave us. Um, but I'm hoping you can compare and contrast what you're seeing in your market specifically versus maybe what someone typically thinks about in San Francisco, Los, San Francisco, Los Angeles, the, the broader West Coast urban markets. Um, so specifically, you know, are you seeing people still continue to migrate in? Are you seeing people migrate out? Um, what are those trends in your markets that give you confidence relative to maybe some of the urban market trends? Hi, Rich. It's uh, Mike. I think I'll handle that one, <clears throat> and uh, others may want to comment as well. But uh, I think we feel really very good about what's happening here. Uh, you know, noted in my comments that we're fully recovered with respect to market rents uh, versus pre-pandemic levels, while only recovering about half the job so far. So that I think that's a powerful uh, place to start. And uh, you know, as we look around the West Coast, we feel you know great about what's happening. Uh, and we expect good times to continue. The you know, consumer is super optimistic. Uh, they've saved money via you know, COVID versus COVID by not traveling and a variety of other things. The um, millennials are you know, forming households. And 
there's a lot of hiring here on the West Coast. So that's why we talk about the top 10 tech companies and how many open positions they have. You know, they've come a long way in the past year. You know, after what we perceive as them pulling back amid COVID on their expansion plans, I think that they're now turning that corner or have turned that corner, hiring more people, uh, pursuing things that they put on hold a year ago. And uh, so everything feels like it's... Um, it's in good order at this point in time. You know, as you go to the cities, you know, the main driver of job growth at this point in time has been the recovery of all the industries that have been so dramatic, so dramatically affected uh, a year ago, you know, including the leisure, hospitality, restaurants, um, filming in Southern California, et cetera. And as we look at the world, we're, we're looking at, um, you know, whether we believe these industries are poised for future growth and we think absolutely they are we think that you know we're in affluent areas affluent areas demand services you're starting to see those services come back in terms of restaurants and a variety of other areas and so we see this turning around nicely and and again i wouldn't have expected to be fully back with respect to rents uh, at a time when we've only recovered about half the jobs that we lost Make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I was just waiting to see if anyone else was going to follow up. That, that's, that's perfect, Mike. Um, as we look forward, and at the risk of asking you to guide, which I'm not, um, we had this obviously pretty significant trough that, that came late last year into early this year. Is it, is it sort of reasonable to think that 2022 will be the mirror image of that? And, and then maybe we can, we maybe even continue to push rents above a normal trend uh, over the medium term? It's a it's a good question, and uh, you know Barb will, will look at me very strangely if we start talking about twenty two at this point in time. So, and you know you know how we are. We tend to be pretty careful in terms of guidance, and um, you know so we we don't want to go too far out there. But I would say that you know I would I would expect certainly the uh, return to office to be a good thing for the downtown lo locations because, you know, most of the top 10 tech companies or most of the tech companies in general have announced a hybrid type of approach, which means that people are going to have to be closer to the offices to show up, you know, let's say plus or minus three times per week. As a result of that, you know, the people that move to the, the hinterlands, the most suburban parts of our portfolio, um, probably are going to need to come come back and I you know I think about Ventura I don't want to pick on Ventura because it's done great but uh, you know it's a long way on a commute pattern from Ventura into the where the jobs are in LA and uh, I don't think people are even going to want to do that three times a week so I think that kind of frames the, the dynamic the, those that had you know, a year given the pandemic to make a different choice about where to live, I think will likely make a different choice going forward. You know, now that there's more clarity about what the uh, the large companies are going to do with respect to their uh, work work from home or return to office programs. Okay. Um, the only other thing I would add is, you know, leases we're signing today will have half an impact to the rent this year to our rent roll and that will carry forward into next year too. I mean, look, as Angela mentioned, 
we had a strong July, and so that you know that is going to only affect part of this year's numbers. So. Yep. I got it. Um, thank you, guys. Um, I'm not sure that's entirely what I wanted, but I, but I appreciate the response. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Joshua Dennerline with Bank of America. Please proceed with your question. Hey, guys. Hope you're all doing well. Um, just kind of curious what your uh, mark-to-market is in your portfolio, um, and maybe if you have it by, by region like Seattle, Northern California, uh, and Southern California. Mark, Mark, are we talking about lost lease yeah. numbers? Yeah, lost yeah. lease. Sorry. No, that's all right. That's all right. Well, uh, in terms of the lost lease, we actually are in a much better position and 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 at a level even better than pre-COVID. So, if we look at July lost lease for the Essex portfolio, it's now at seven point four percent. And so, and that of course varies. You know, Seattle at the highest at about 12, Southern California in the middle of the pack at about eight, and uh, Northern California at the lowest at, a, at about three and a half. Okay, awesome. And in, in your guidance range, what are you assuming as as far as like a recovery for the rest of the year and in, in, in rate um, for the Northern California market? Uh, you know, I, I'll start. Uh, you know, the second half of the year, you know, you as each we have to turn leases in order to impact our you know same store or our revenue, and so you you know as you get toward the end of the year, it becomes less relevant and more relevant, obviously, next year. So, you know, take a, a transaction in October, you only have three months of of that new lease in uh, 2021. The rest of it is going to be in 2022. So there, there's an inherent lagging, uh, you know, concept with respect to what's going on with market rents, which Andrew just talked about, versus uh, how it shows up on the on the income statement. So I, I think that's important in terms of just looking at market rents. Uh, you know, we tried to provide a little bit of color on on that, and uh, you know, with respect to S17, that's what we're trying to to get at. That uh, you know, overall, our our economic rent growth on S17 is at minus 0.9 percent, uh, and you know, that's a you know one twelfth of every month throughout the year. So January 2021 versus January 2020 plus February through the year divided by 12 is what that number represents. So we started the year at a rent, you know, in the minus nine to minus 10% range. And that implies to get to 0.9%, minus 0.9% on S17, that the fourth quarter will be plus 6%. And, uh, you know, that does not anticipate a lot of rent growth between now and then, which is pretty typical. We typically hit the peak of market rents in July at the end of the peak leasing season, and uh, and then it flattens out for the rest of the year. So, you know, that's what's assumed in those numbers. Great. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Austin Wershmitt with KeyBank. Please proceed with your question. 
Great. Thanks, guys. Um, it seems possible that, that your markets could experience an extended leasing season. It's it certainly come up on other calls, and, and some seem pretty optimistic about the, the prospects. But um, clearly, as you identified, there are some risks to take into consideration. So just wondering kind of how you went about your back half guidance, and, and did you assume typical seasonality or, or sort of that another leg up in demand in the late summer, early fall time frame? Yeah, this is this is Mike, and you know I agree with you. Um, we did not. We assumed more or less the typical, um, you know, trend with respect to market rent. So kind of peaking in July, and uh, not a lot of growth for the rest of the year. If as we think about it, however, there are some things that are different. You know, for example, you know, will the tech companies continue hiring? Normally, you know, what happens is hiring tails off at the end of the year. Uh, you know. Companies get business plans at the, you know, toward the third, fourth quarter, and then they start implementing them in the first quarter. That's what really drives the peak leasing season. So the question here is, will companies continue hiring at a higher level given COVID than they have in the past? I think there's a very good chance that that could happen. Uh, I also, you know, this uh, work from home and return to office uh, concept could have an impact on that as well. If you know more people are uh, moving back into the um, the more urban areas from uh, you know, people that were displaced as California and Washington were shutting down a year ago, if those people continue to come back, uh, you know, late later this year, that could possibly push rents higher in the second part of the year. So we've again, assumed based on our experience and what typically happens, the normal curve with respect to rents, but there are some things that are different here and uh, you know, so we could end up with uh, being surprised to the positive side. Great, that's, that's very helpful. And then Angela, I think you mentioned that uh, you're starting the redeve- restarting the, the redevelopment program. Could you give us kind of the, the scale of that or the annual run rate and then maybe offer up some additional details on sort of the economics? Um, that'd be really helpful. Sure thing. Uh, you know, we normally pre-COVID, our run rate was about, in terms of units, about 4,000 units a year. And what we did was scale back significantly last year. So second half of last year, we only renovated about 600, you know, a little over 600 units, 650 units. So the target to re- the restart for the second half of this year is to, to double that. So, you know, to achieve uh, close to 1,300 uh, units this year. Um, we are looking at a couple of large developments for future, you know, for next year that will have you know, greater opportunities. But in terms of um, just the, you know, the, the return on investments, we're actually looking at ranges pretty darn consistent with pre-COVID levels. And so while, you know, cost has gone up, but rents have gone up as well concurrently. So we think we're in a pretty good spot. And, and what are those? What are those numbers on the economics? They tend to range depending on the asset and the scope and the market, but I'll give you a range that might be a little bit better than a hard number. They tend to range, say, in the high single digits to the high double digits, so it's a pretty wide range. Got it. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Amanda Schweitzer with Robert W. Baird. Please proceed with your question. Thanks. Good morning. Following up on some of your comments on ramping up your development spending, 
Can you just provide an update on areas you're targeting for those potential product projects as well as underwritten yields you think you could achieve? Hey, Amanda, this is Adam. Um, were you referring to redevelopment or development? I had thought you mentioned ramping up development along with acquisitions earlier in the call, but I could be mistaken. Okay, yeah, um, I'm happy to take that one. So on development, um, yeah, given where our stock is trading and given um, some opportunities that we're seeing out there now where we can uh, uh, make sense of accretive transactions, um, we are definitely looking at ramping up the, the development pipeline. Um, I'd say our main areas of focus would be uh, primarily Northern California, Seattle. Um, those I see as probably the, the two um, best markets in that respect, but we're looking throughout our, our portfolio and throughout our footprint for, uh, for deals. And then any change in terms of underwritten yield do you think you could achieve on those projects versus pre-COVID levels? So, um, yeah, good question. So what we're seeing, we've underwritten several dozen deals over the last few months. Um, the deals that we see going down primarily, um, cap rates have definitely compressed. So on the development side, we're seeing um, on untreaded rents, return on cost at about four, um, four to four and a quarter, basically. Um, so still a gap between where existing deals are trading, um, which are in the, call it, you know, three and a quarter to three and a half. Um, we're going to look at, uh, at numbers higher than that. Um, we've not, we wouldn't transact at a call to four development yield, um, but we're going to, we would be looking in the four and a half to, to high fours. Thanks. Appreciate the time. Yep. Our next question comes from the line of Rich Anderson with SMBC. Please proceed with your question. Thanks. Good morning, everybody. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in this 17 uh, supplemental, or S171, I should say, uh, the migration trends that you referenced in your prepared remarks. Um, is that is that everything, or, or is it pr predominantly, you know, kind of close in, like Monterey, Sacramento type of uh, net migration or in-migration? And does it net out people that are, you know, leaving California entirely. Is this, is this the full number, number one? And number two, um, uh, what, what do you think about this 18%? Is this, is this like a sort of a knee-jerk response to working, you know, remotely but closer to the office and that probably this is peaking out at about this time and it starts to come back down? What, what's, what's, the, what's the ceiling on this, on this graph, do you think? This is Barb. Yeah, on uh, S17.1, um, the 18% is a net number. So you, if you look back a year ago, we did have out-migration, and that's what's showing in the negative 8%. And now we have people moving back, and, and they're really coming from, you know, Sacramento and some of the, the outer-lying areas within California, but we're also noticing people moving in from college towns. So people, recent college grads are, are coming here for jobs, and, and it's really geographically dispersed. I mean, um, there's no discernible pattern from where they're coming from. It's kind of all over. Um, and, you know, we do think that it, it does speak to, you know, the strength of our markets and people coming back and returning after the services have reopened and, um, you know, the, the economy has reopened. Now we're seeing the people 
people return. And so we think it's a good sign and a good leading indicator. You should note that this Seattle in our portfolio looks similar as well. We're seeing a big in-migration in Seattle as well. So we didn't show it here, but it's Bay Area and Seattle both have a similar um, chart where there's a big influx. And I think you're seeing it in the rent growth that Angela spoke to and San Fran being up 11% in the CBD and, and uh, you know, NorCal and some of the other suburban markets in NorCal having bigger sequential rent growth more recently is, is partly due to this immigration. Hey, hey, Rich, I have a, a yeah, Rich, could I add a, make a, a broader comment? And I, I would say the broader comment is that the migration out of the West Coast, our view, was largely driven by businesses being shut down and putting people in the position of not having a paycheck and effectively forcing them to move to somewhere else. And I know that the, sort of the, it doesn't fit the narrative. The narrative is that, oh, all these people wanted to leave California. I think the reality is completely different from that. And, and therefore, you know, I go back to my basic comment, which is, you know, do we feel comfortable with the businesses that are here and with job growth going forward? And when you look at the components of that, you know, okay, the hotels are now mostly open here on the West Coast. The restaurants are opening and, uh, you know, but we were still at 50% of capacity uh, a month or two ago. So, you know, we opened completely on June 15th, but that process has been relatively slow. And I think, I think that's why job growth has lagged the U.S. as we've come out of uh, the pandemic. And, but I, I guess the, the key point here is, most of the migration that occurred was not voluntary migration. It was caused by shutting down businesses. And then if you look at the, the flip side of that, are those businesses likely to reopen given, uh, you know, COVID is mostly behind us? And, you know, we feel 100% absolutely convinced that that will occur. And so, you know, when we look, we have some more broader information on migration in general. And a lot of the same things that we talked about a year or two ago are still in place. You know, the inflows into our markets t tend to be the um, high cost East Coast metros and the outflows tend to be uh, into lower cost Western areas. So those trends really haven't changed all that much. But Barb, you know, this S17.1 is trying to uh, address specifically, you know, the cadence of what's coming in and what's going out. And, you know, to your point, yes, everything, of course, everything's in there. We're not here to try to push a narrative that is, uh, that is not reality because if we do that, we're just going to shoot ourselves in the foot. So there's no evidence, I think, of, of Essex trying to be overly optimistic. And um, so, you know, we're trying to communicate what's really happening out there and what we're really seeing. So I yeah, guess that well, would... Wasn't wasn't implying yeah. that. I just you mentioned you know sort of near in areas is the uh, immigration. Just want to make sure I was looking at the same thing. Um, so the second question, um, you know, fifteen twenty years ago, Mike Shaw and Keith Gerke were the uh, the heroes with you know ten percent plus growth, and you know California was was the place to be. Now, if you would at that point made some investments in the Sun Belt. Uh, you know, you'd be a, a hero, you know, so the, the torch is passed, at least for now. Um, but 
I assume your reversion of the mean is your, is your mindset certainly sounds like what you're saying. And do you see now as a particularly interesting time to be investing in your markets, you know, for all the reasons you just described, but, but also, you know, it's particularly special because of what's happened outside of California and Washington and what you think might come back, you know, and that there will be sort of a, a narrowing of the performance gap over the next several years? Yeah, no, hey, it's a great question, Rich. And, uh, you know, our board's pretty focused on this uh, geographic diversity, uh, you know, issue and, uh, you know, some of the challenges that we've had more recently uh, with respect to, you know, regulation and, and other things. Uh, but, you know, we don't want to get too far away from sort of this longer term pattern because, you know, we it isn't like we're going to grow, uh, you know, every year the same, you know, conditions change, but we remain focused in our analysis on which areas have the highest cares of rent growth over time. And it may surprise you because, you know, you could, you can say, um, you know, the West Coast has dropped off of that. More recently, yes, but if you look back, let's say 15 years, because I have these numbers right out of our strategic plan in front of us, you know, Seattle led, you know, all the major markets, um, you know, with a 5.6% 15-year rent growth CAGR from 2004 to 2019, so to the pre-COVID level. And Northern California was, you know, pretty close to that. And, uh, you know, you start going down the list, and, and certainly Boston, in Miami are, you know, pretty attractive in that respect, as is northern New Jersey. But then there are a lot of markets that really have fallen well below that. And so, you know, our whole thesis here has been, let's try to identify the things that promote long-term rent growth and let's invest in those markets. And, you know, we can, as you know, we've looked at some things on the East Coast before and we'll, you know, continue doing that. But I guess as, as we think about things, let's, let me just make a, a simple comparison. Let's compare San Jose with Austin. And, uh, you know, there are cities of about the same size, same population. Austin has about 28,000 multifamily units in construction, whereas San Jose has about 8,000. We also don't produce very much housing or for sale housing in San Jose, and the median price is well over a million dollars. So as an apartment owner, we look at that and say, are we better off being in San Jose or in Austin? And, you know, we conclude that it's better to be in, in San Jose. I mean, Austin has to get extraordinary amounts of growth over and above San Jose, which of course is driven by the tech companies, which are doing really well and they hire a lot of people. So I guess I would say the bloom is not off the West Coast. Yes, we, we grew really fast from 2011 through 2016 when, by the way, um, you know, we had job growth in the 4 to 5% range on the West Coast, and then it slowed down because of affordability issues, because you can't have rents grow oh, you know, twice as fast as incomes over long periods of time without creating affordability issues. So there is a long-term you know, approach to the business. And, um, you know, I, I think that, um, that, that, uh, making vast portfolio decisions based on, you know, with all the unique circumstances in COVID would be misguided. Really great caller. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it, everybody. Thanks, Rich.
Our next question comes from the line of Neil Malkin with Capital One Securities. Please proceed with your question. Um, hey, everyone. Uh, good morning to you. Um, just uh, first, um, you know, Mike, uh, Angela, uh, it seems like in a lot of your prepared comments, um, you know, the, the risks of, <clears throat> excuse me, of COVID um, or, or the Delta variant, you know, throwing a wrench into the recovery seem like maybe I'm understanding wrong, like a, a lower or, or something that you're really not maybe waiting a lot. Um, and, and I guess my, my question uh, on that part is, um, you know, are you, have you thought about, um, you know, the Delta variant, uh, how, how, you know, it's spreading a lot quicker. I think I've just seen some studies that say like vaccinated people can also spread it as well, like as easily as unvaccinated. Um, and, and um, you know, the markets that you're in are, mo are most likely to, re you know, reshut down or re-implement um, restrictions um, if cases rise, uh, hospitalizations rise, et cetera. Um, so, you know, given that that's likely to happen as the fall comes, um, you know, what kind of weighting do you, do you kind of give to that notion of, of a potential hiccup um, from, from reimposed restrictions? Yeah, it's, it is a, a good question and an important question. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I would say, unfortunately, we have no way to really figure out what COVID might do uh, going forward. And, uh, but we were definitely aware of the risk. Um, one thing that I think is a little bit different in California, you know, clearly we've got population densities that are pretty high. And so the risk of COVID is perhaps um, greater given that. And I think the government act actually has done a very good job here of trying to promote vaccination rates in the Essex markets. And, uh, you know, I think our, our vaccination rates are are pretty high relative to the rest of the world. So uh, the information I have is that um, the people with at least one shot and are 12 years and older, you know, we're in California, Washington, about 82% vaccinated versus 67% for the U.S. So, you know, I think that what's happened here is we've tried to, the government has tried to um, react to that risk by really pushing the vaccination rate. And they've done a, a very good job of that. So I think that lowers our exposure to some extent, but no doubt, um, you know, areas with high population density, uh, you know, have uh, a different COVID risk than some of the other areas. And in this case, I think it's been dealt with effectively. Oh, okay. So that's a, that's a really helpful stat. Thank you for that. Um, other one for me is, you know, the, uh, your previous comment, you talked about, you know, not, not making, you know, I guess rash decisions or, you know, thinking about things on a historic level. Um, and, you know, I guess if, if you look at, Two, you know, large uh, peers, people don't like to say names, but, you know, coastal players have you know, re recently announced, you know, pretty significant capital uh, plans in you know, Raleigh, Charlotte, Atlanta, Dallas, Austin. And I would imagine they have, you know, boards and a lot of stakeholders that they probably consulted with before they allocate, you know, a lot of capital. Um, so, you know, kind of, you know, with that being said, does that, I mean, do you, do you give credence to that at all? I mean, does that, you know, does it make you think maybe a little bit more about that? I mean, you, you referenced that permitting is down in your markets and you know, maybe that isn't like a, a good thing. Maybe that's like a, a bad thing of, 
you know, people are focusing their, their growth prospects and capital elsewhere? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question and, and very valid. And uh, this is why we spend so much time in our prepared remarks, you know, talking about what's going on with, you know, the top 10 tech companies. You know, we created that index, uh, you know, so that we could keep our eye on, you know, where are the open positions for the top 10 tech companies? Are they moving more to some of these other locations? And if so, what do we do about it? So yeah, I didn't mean to imply, actually, that, you know, we're, you know, so focused on, uh, you know, 15-year cagers of rent growth. Uh, you know, so definitely the historical information is important, but we're trying to supplement that in a hundred different ways with a ton of data sources that that are either confirming or, you know, raising questions about what the future looks like. That's why, you know, Angela's talking about, you know, how much office construction, you know, if you're gonna build office buildings, presumably there are gonna be employees in there and we're gonna need to build apartments to, you know, house those employees. I mean, these are all indicators of what's happening in the future. Uh, Keeping our eye on the top 10 tech companies and their hiring trends, again, both within California and outside of California, super important important in, in, in that regard. Again, I go back to the industries. What are the driving industries? You know, what are the industries that sort of you know, drive the entire machine? You know, we can, it's certainly not the hospitality and the restaurant workers that are driving it. They are really the result of affluent, wealthy areas demanding those services. And guess what? They pay a lot more than in other places of the country because of that. And so I think what's happening here is, you know, we're in the process of all those people that were dis- displaced from shutting down restaurants and, uh, you know, other services, we're going to need to draw them back into the area. But I think that uh, given the demand for those services and given the, the wealth that has been created here by the tech community, by motion pictures in, in Southern California, and other people that want to live near a beach, let's say, uh, you know, those services are in demand and they're going to come back. It's, you know, it'll take a little bit of time perhaps to do that. But again, we're trying to say, okay, let's stay focused on what are the drivers of the economy here. And again, as I look at it, and hopefully everyone will agree, tech's not going away or hasn't gone away. Certainly all the information that we've given out with respect to the, the tech companies over time confirms the thesis that they're they're here, they're not going away, they continue to invest in our markets. Uh, motion pictures in Southern California, you can't, you know, shoot, um, you know, film Films where you require 50 to 100 people on a set during COVID, completely shut down. Demand for content, not going away anytime soon. Therefore, there's a very good chance that that is going to resume. And I can go, I could go on beyond that. But I think that that sets the point. If the drivers are intact, uh, the things that follow, the demand for services, restaurants, et cetera, will follow. And uh, the thesis of the company in terms of job growth remains intact. And then if you don't produce enough housing supply, I would view that as a good thing. Okay, well, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Alexander Goldfarb with Piper Sandler. Please proceed with your question. Hey, uh, good morning. Uh, so, uh, Mike, t- uh, two questions. First, uh, the data on uh, S17 uh, that is is super. So, if 
like if we were out in the Bay Area like a month ago and saw San Francisco sort of empty, are you saying that with this 18, 18% increase that now like San Francisco would be active and all of the apartment REITs that have reported this quarter who have all shown the, you know, San Francisco to be the weak link, that will, you're saying that we will see that change substantially in the next few quarters? Uh, Alex, so you're referring to the um, this uh, movement back to the inner bay area portfolio on 17.1. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're saying that the, the trend the trend is reversed, and uh, the uh, you know the movement back to the bay area has begun. Uh, I would yeah, I caveat that I think most of that is is the um, the service businesses, restaurants, and uh, you know leisure hospitality is the leader in terms of uh, you know, jobs coming back, they would, that was the area that was most severely uh, disconnected uh, during the pandemic. But, uh, and then we, we have, you know, coming at us in the not too distant future, uh, the tech companies and the uh, return to office program. So, you know, I think that that continues that, that trend. And again, there are a lot of restaurants that, you know, converted to a takeout only mode. I think, you know, I think we'll go back to a more normal you know, type of situation where, you know, those restaurant workers continue to come back as well. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's mending not as fast as we want to. Again, I go back to the initial premise, which is we've gotten all the rent back, all the rents back to where they were pre-COVID with half the employment. I think that's a pretty powerful statement. Okay, but I'm just trying to, I guess, Mike, if you look at, like, Manhattan, I know you guys are not in New York City, but the city came back a lot quicker than, than you know, many expected, even though, you know, work from home, you know, only whatever, 20% of the buildings, you know, have people in them. But city rents and the occupancy rates have rebounded strongly, whereas San Francisco and Seattle, the downtowns respectively, were still lacking. So I guess I'm curious if your view is that within a few quarters, we will see the downtowns of San Francisco and downtowns of Seattle rebound strongly like we've seen in New York based on what you guys are showing in this in this attachment uh, S17. Yeah, no, that, hey, that's a good question, Alex. So New York, you know, if you look at trailing three-month job growth in New York, it was 10.2%. San Francisco was 5.2%, and San Jose was 5.2%. So you have a pretty dramatic underperformance with respect to, you know, overall job growth. So, you know, and I attribute that to, uh, the, again, the West Coast needing to open up. You know, we were still, you know, well into June at, uh, you know, like 50% of capacity in restaurants and that type of thing. Whereas I'm, I'm assuming that New York, I don't know exactly what they did, but they did something to cause a fairly dramatic uh, difference in terms of their resurgence in employment that hasn't happened yet on the West Coast. I think it's coming, but, um, you know, we're just a little bit slower than uh, some of the other metros, including New York. Okay, and then the second question is, uh, Barb, on the uh, on the guidance, you said that because of the mismatch in terms of accelerated debt and preferred equity uh, redemptions versus what you uh, what you guys can put out, there's about a ten cent drag. So is that ten cents only in NARED FFO, but not in co in company FFO, or is it in both? It's in both. This is because the prepayment. 
penalties or fees that we received this year, about seven and a half million, those are only in total FFO, not in core FFO, but what I'm referring to is just a timing issue. We've um, you know, been redeemed, gotten money back early, so we don't have any of the interest income um, from those investments, and we haven't put any money back to work, and so that's the 10 cents that I'm referring to. What we're looking at, since that prepayment penalty has really compensated us for, you know, having our, our money outstanding for a certain period of time, you know, I'm advocating with Barb to, you know, change that so that it's not a non-core, uh, you know, item. Because we can, you know, it, it's really, we have a minimum earned, uh, you know, preferred return. And uh, unfortunately, it's showing up in the non-core category rather than core. Yeah, that Mike, that was going to be my point. Is you guys are very productive on this, and whether you get paid out over t time or you get it redeemed early, but they pay up and pay you a, a penalty for that, that is core part of your business. So that was my question: is why you would exclude, you know, the positives that come from this platform? And yeah, I mean, it sounds like you guys are having that internal debate, but I mean, you're successful at it, and no point in not really showcasing the earnings potential there. Uh, it's, you know, we're, we're um, we have looked at it. We obviously have to follow GAAP accounting rules, and so it's you know more complicated than it appears on the surface. But yes, there's an internal debate internally. But what we've booked year to date has all been non-core for the prepayment. Okay. Uh, listen, thank you. Thanks, Alex. Our next question comes from the line of John Kim with BMO Capital Markets. Please proceed with your question. Thank you. Um, regarding Northern California and the recovery, um, I think Angela mentioned in the prepared remarks that July effective rents are still 8% below pre-COVID uh, levels. And I'm not sure if that was a market rent concept or for ethics, but I was wondering if you're going against um, easier comps, given you were more aggressive on concessions beginning of the third quarter last year, and if the recovery could be faster than, that, than we think. Um, yeah, I'll let Angela comment on the um, you know the the number for, for San Jose, but it, but I would say you know what's happened here is, uh, and we had you know we had callers on previous calls that have said, hey, uh, with negative job growth, how are you able to maintain high levels of occupancy in the cities? And uh, obviously, a great question. And the answer to that was, of course, that we drew people because the price point was lower, we drew people from other places into some of the better locations. So they, they improved their location given lower rents. And so now you look at this equation and we're you know, 96% occupied, people are starting to come back and there's no availability and therefore you know, market rents are doing what they're doing. So I think you know, a lot of this is really driven by you know, our our strategy during the pandemic and um, you know now it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years because you know market with market rents now uh, back to where they were um, you know pre-pandemic level you know what is the movement within the portfolio uh, you know both in and out of those uh, locations that have much higher rents so in the case of you know San Jose San Francisco and Oakland they're still substantially below the prior rent so they're still you know reason to believe that uh, you know those the people that moved in given lower rents will stay but you know that may uncouple over the next several years uh, 
And, and so was that 8% uh, figure that Angela quoted, was that for Essex or for the market overall? Well, that was for Essex. Okay. Um, Mike, you mentioned cap rates in your markets are low to mid 3%, which sounds like it's compressed about 50 basis points at least from last quarter. Um, can you comment on the assumptions that you think the market is placing now that's changed, whether it's rental growth or exit cap rate, and whether or not you agree with those assumptions or you know believe they're rational? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the, the comment and the comparison the last quarter and then flip it to, to Adam to talk about cap rates more generally. But I think last quarter what we said was in some of the hard hit areas that uh, you know, buyers were performing some rent recovery. So it probably wasn't you know, a whole 50 basis point reduction. It was really that uh, they weren't using really the current uh, net effective rents. They were assuming a bit higher rent level. So that, that reconciles part of that. But Adam, you want to talk about cap rates in general? Yeah, sure. Um, so so I, think, I think the general assumption that buyers are making is that there will be a full recovery. Um, and by that, I mean with rents um, greater than pre-pandemic levels. And we're, we're already seeing those rents that we've already talked about during the call. So, um, so yeah, so it, it's in the low threes, I think, um, you know, pretty robust rent growth over the next few years. And then probably mellowing out is what I, uh, is uh, the, the various people that I've talked to, that's what they're modeling. And then on exit caps, I think um, it's as aggressive as ever. So um, I don't think there's much assumption that there's um, a big expansion on the on the exit side. So it, um, it underwriting has, uh, has definitely gotten more aggressive. Is there a big difference between your markets or urban versus suburban? Yeah, uh, good question. So um, going kind of north to south, Seattle, we've seen, uh, we've actually seen a, a pretty big pickup in tra transactional volume. And um, that's probably uh, amongst the most aggressive markets that we're seeing um, in the CBDs on kind of current net effective rents. We're seeing high twos to, to low threes. And um, in, in the markets that really um, didn't too much of a hit uh, on rents, we're seeing those like maybe in, a, in the three and a quarter to three and a half range on the much more suburban outer markets. Um, and then going down very little in Northern California is traded. So um, it's hard to really opine there, but it's, it's in that probably low threes range. And then down to like San Diego, Orange County, um, those markets performed better from a rental aspect. So, so those, those cap rates on current net effective aren't quite as low as, as what we've seen in those harder hit markets. So it's probably closer to that three, four, three, five kind of range. And very little in LA is traded as well. So it's it's down in the kind of low threes, but there's very few data points. Thanks for the color. Sure. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Brad Heffern with RBC Capital Market. Please proceed with your question. Hey everyone. Um, on the the federal funds, I think you mentioned in the prepared comments that there was a, a negligible amount received to date, and that there really isn't much in the guide either. Um, I was curious if you had any figures around, you know, maybe what you have applications out for, or some sort of risk assessment of what you might receive on that. Yeah. Hi, it's Angela here. So out of, um, I think we reported that we have about. Um, 55 million of delinquencies out there, and we've applied for about 18 million. 
and to date we've received four million of it. So you know about twenty some percent recovery rate. Um, uh, as far as we could tell, it's it's really more of a slow going because California just has a you know more complicated and and slower um, reimbursement process. So in our view, you know, that 18 million, we don't view that 18 million as having significant risk from that perspective. The reason we didn't bake it into our guidance for this year is really the timing is the question. And just given that the, the rate of the reimbursement has just been much slower. Um, and so, so that's really the key driver of why it's not in this year's guidance. Okay, got it. And that four million, I assume that's largely been this month. Just given you said there wasn't, it was sort of negligible in the first half. Or is that right? Yeah, yeah, for the most part, this month. Okay, got it. Um, and then just one administrative sort of one, if I could. In the press release, there was a, a six point three percent blended rate number for July, but then in the commentary, I heard a, a four point seven number. I just wanted to, to verify, you know, what those two things were talking about. Oh, sure. So the 4.7% is a sequential month to month. So what I was trying to do is provide a real-time uh, picture of what's happening in our market. So comparing July to June of this month, it's already up sequentially 4.7% on a net effective basis. And so what's in our supplement, that blend at least rate is a year over year. So that compares July of this year to July of last year. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Alex Kalmus with Zellman and Associates. Please proceed with your question. Hi, thank you for taking the question. Uh, looking at your Southern California occupancy, it's quite high, and we've heard a lot this uh, quarter from from others that the that the delinquencies are in their portfolios are sort of concentrated in this um, port, you know, part of the country. So I'm just curious, uh, what, what would happen if once the moratoriums are up, does that affect the occupancy levels on a physical basis in your mind, or how, how do you see that playing out there? Yeah, this is uh, this is Mike. <clears throat> it's a good question. Yes, we we agree with uh, the others that uh, Southern California and really specifically Los Angeles is um, a big part of the uh, delinquency, uh, the largest part of the delinquency, and and therefore there's some question about what might happen. But it, it's not a huge percentage, and you know. We expect to work with our residents to the extent we can, and um, so I don't think it'll have a huge impact on occupancy overall. So, but it, re it remains to be seen, and because we can't envision exactly what that scenario is going to look like, uh, and uh, so we, but it's just not enough, I think, to really uh, severely impact us. Got it. Thank you very much, and. Just thinking about the the regulations on you know rent increases that are in place um, when you're sort of internally discussing the difference between holding occupancy or pushing rate, is there uh, any momentum to say you'd rather you know keep the base rates pretty high to then expand a little more there and maybe lose a little occupancy um, as a sacrifice or 
is it is still hold occupancy as a primary driver? You know, it, it, it's different by in each region, and uh, so there's a, a thousand different um, you know pieces to that equation because there's been so much movement in in rent, and um, so we're gonna. So the answer is gonna vary vary by region, and so it's it's difficult to uh, generalize you know throughout the portfolio, um, but um, you know we. We think that we will be able to work with you know, residents. We've tried to do that in the past. That'll continue going on in the future. And uh, certainly with respect to any of the delinquency that, that's not covered by uh, you know, some of these programs to um, make good on, uh, on the COVID-related delinquencies, we'll try to work with our residents that we ha- as we have in the past. Again, it's a little bit difficult to try to figure out exactly what that means from different areas because there's sets of regulations in a variety of different places from emergency orders to you know state rent control and, and the like. And so it's sort of a case-by-case basis. It's difficult to generalize. Okay, no problem. Thank, thanks for the color there. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of John Pulowski with Green Street Advisors. Please proceed with your question. Thanks for keeping the call going. Um, Adam, I appreciate all the, the cap rate commentary. Um, I'm trying to square those, those really low cap rates to the commentary about ramping or being more positive on external growth because from the cap rates quote, it feels like you guys are trading at an NAV discount. So can you maybe just help square the external growth uh, appetite and the prevailing private market pricing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. It's it's the reason why we we haven't been um, super active on the on the external growth side is that uh, is that these are it, the the most of the transactions that have gone down have not been accretive. And to your point, uh, you know, from an NAV standpoint, not accretive as well. Uh, w- we're seeing a few more opportunities out there that that will fit, and you know our stock is recently up, although still I'd say um, you know when you're looking at the low threes, uh, that's still um, that that puts us in the uh, trading below NAV range. So we're we're underwriting everything. Um, being more aggressive, where we feel like uh, we can we can make some uh, make a difference on growth accretion as well as uh, FFO. But um, but yeah, you you nailed it. it uh, that, that's why we haven't done much so far. John, I would I would add that uh, this is Mike. Obviously, I would add that uh, we're closer now than we were 30 or 45 days ago. So we're we're getting closer. I mean, debt rates have come down uh, quite substantially, as you know, and uh, so they're at least is a, uh, a hope that we will be more active. We're looking at a lot of deals. Adam's looking at a lot of deals. And so we're pricing things out and, and trying to make, uh, make the numbers work. And again, we're going to remain disciplined yeah. to enemy of the company versus what we're seeing out there in the transaction area. We think that's the, the fundamental uh, behind the success of the company over long periods of time. Okay. Now, understood things are moving quickly. Uh, maybe just Adam or Mike, uh, based off prevailing private market pricing today, if you had to double down on a market and you had to exit a market, what are kind of the, the top and bottom picks? 
I'll, yep. let, I'll let Adam deal with that one. <laughs> Good question. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, so double down, I, I, I'm a big fan of Seattle in general, um, and I would say East Side, East Side especially, given um, the, the jobs picture there. Even, even though uh, supply is slightly elevated, I think the jobs picture there is um, significant, and it's uh, lots of tailwinds. Uh, to exit a market, we love all of our markets, uh, <laughs> but um, uh, maybe Hemet. Oh, we're definitely <laughs> interested in exiting Hemet. Yeah, that's one property. No, yeah. I, I, I joke. Um, you know, Ventura has had a, a pretty good run here as of late, um, and it, it continues to do fine. But again, if we had to pick a market, like, like I said, we. We are focused on our entire footprint, and um, so you know we'll uh, we'll we'll go in where we see opportunities. All right, thanks so much. Thanks, John. There are no other questions in the queue. I'd like to hand the call back to management for closing remarks. Okay, very good. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate that. And I uh, want to thank everyone for joining us on the call today. Uh, appreciate your time. And uh, we know we covered a lot of ground. If there are any follow-up questions, don't hesitate to reach out to us. And uh, we thought it was a great dialogue. And we look forward to seeing many of you, hopefully, uh, at a conference and in person in the near future. Thanks for joining the call. Ladies and gentlemen, this does conclude today's teleconference. Thank you for your participation. Goodbye. You may disconnect your lines at this time and have a wonderful day.